New Testament reading, 1 Peter chapter 2. Joy to witness and participate in the sacrament of baptism this morning and one week from today we will do the same thing. We will welcome Eric and Beatrice Seifert and family, witness the baptism of uh, their son Liam. So that'll be one week from today, so consecutive weeks baptism. We are excited for that um, as we welcome a new member family and baptize their son. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. We will make some mention of this this morning in the sermon. Called to be a unique people on this earth. Hear God's holy word from 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Old Testament reading in our sermon text, Isaiah 35. Let's turn our attention once more to God's holy word. And give our attention to its reading, for the grass will wither and the flowers will fall. The word of our God will endure forever. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. 
Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter with Zion, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, as we come before your word, may we tremble before it as we heard earlier. Speak with power by your spirit. Allow these promises and these truths to take root in our hearts. We pray also for the offerings that have been received, that they would go to the furthering of your kingdom and your work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. great story book and, and film children of men depicts a world where humans have all ceased to be fruitful no child has been born in 18 years in the whole world the youngest person on earth thereby is becoming now a, a young adult he's a world hero but he's a symbol of fading hope as he gets older and becomes an adult the story centers around a woman who in the midst of this great worldwide crisis, uh, mothers a child. The circumstances of this conception are mysterious and even supernatural, but this child, uh, as people become aware that this woman is expecting, and even as the child is born, it it is uh, a a symbol of powerful hope, and all who come in contact with it uh, taste of this hope. And that is because this is something that's so unlike what everyone is used to seeing. They're used to seeing a world where this is no longer happening anymore. Children are not being born and there aren't young kids playing and it's becoming a part of the distant past and and fading as memories fade. And then to see something so unlike what you are used to seeing, it it makes hope spring forth and it, it comes in a way that's so unexpected. And it it even spills forth in the way that people live their lives. The the story kind of culminates with this large battle ensuing because the world has kind of devolved into chaos and strife. But even those who are engaging in the battle and the fight, as they become aware that there's a child in their midst, they cease firing. They, They stop trying to kill one another because this hope is exuding out of this child that as... To my Christian mind, this story can only be understood in light of the the one story that truly does melt the hearts of men. 
that comes in a way that when one is given eyes to see the glory of Christ and one is given eyes to see the power of God in redemptive history, they run to the Savior. It, it melts our hearts and those who see Christ for who he is run to him in repentance and in faith and it spills out into their lives and it's, it's like a flower in the desert that first we need a God who is powerful enough to make a flower blossom in the desert. We need a God who is gracious enough to bring a, his son who exists on this earth like a flower in the desert and that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness and he is so unlike the sinners for whom he dies. And then this, me- this message melts the hearts of the hearers so that they might become like flowers in the desert, living amidst the decay and the corruption of this world. Can a rose blossom in the desert? Can light shine out of darkness? Can order come from chaos? Can life come from nothing? Can life even emerge from death? Well, our God shows us again and again and again that this is who he is. It's his great joy. It is his delight to do so. It is his glory to do so. Michelle and I named this child Rose as a reminder that God gives blessing even amidst the ugliness of the world, born at a time when there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of doubt, a lot of frustration. But God often gives his greatest blessings in the midst of those difficulties. So we'll think about the great change of grace this morning, the confidence of grace, and then the way of grace. The great change of grace. God is powerful enough to make a flower blossom in the deserts. What he does, he, he works even over. He transcends natures and he can overcome anything that would stand in his way. The confidence of grace is that we look to Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ fills us with confidence and, and joy that our God will come. He has already shown that he will come because he has come in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that flower in the desert. And the way of grace, as we are changed and transformed by the gospel of grace, we become like those flowers in the desert. We become testaments to the power of who God is and the joy that he gives for those who are walking on their way to Zion. Let us consider these things together. As you saw, Isaiah 35 describes in beautiful, majestic language that God brings blessing when it seems naturally impossible. He brings blessing out of barrenness. This is captured by the picture of a rose blossoming in the desert. It is beauty in the midst of of desolation. You would have seen in verse 1 in our New International Version that it is translated crocus. And my wife Michelle and I agree with Old Testament scholar E.J. Young when he says this, whereas the common translation rose, by that he means the King James, the older translation, whereas the common translation rose may not be precisely correct, it is far more beautiful than crocus. So we agreed with that. We named this child rose. What we're learning in such a prophecy What would it be to see a flower blossoming in the desert where when you don't expect it at all, everything's dry and arid? There is not that kind of of plant life that you would expect from lush soil, from where rain falls regularly. What we're learning about is the beauty of God's grace. We're learning about the exceptional nature of God's grace. When you see it, when you understand it, it makes the heart rejoice for how beautiful it is. 
And it makes the heart stand in awe for how exceptional it is. There is nothing like it in all of the world. We're also learning, of course, about God's power. God is powerful enough to make this happen. Now, this follows, of course, Isaiah 34. And Isaiah 34, the reverse is really happening. God is powerful enough not only to bring blessing out of barrenness, but in chapter 34, to bring the prosperity of the wicked to nothing. So there's a prophecy against Edom. And in that chapter, Edom dwelt to the the south and east of Israel and had been a thorn in the side of Israel for a long time, often had been known for peace, prosperity, for riches. And Edom comes to symbolize really the whole earth. Isaiah 34 is a prophecy that God will one day come in judgment and he will come to judge the wicked. He will come to set all of the balances right. He will come to make his justice known. And so the prophecy there is that the peace, the riches, the prosperity of Edom will be laid waste. It says this, The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. The modern reader of Isaiah that brings us forward to the last day, to the day of, of judgment. We're called to look to that day to be reminded that all that we think that's immovable, that has to do with this age, All that we think is just going to follow one step after the other. The processes of this world. The kinds of things that we can't affect. That we feel are so far beyond us. All of those will be rendered powerless at the mere word of Christ the King. Who comes to judge the world at the last day. Perhaps you remember the year 2020. Maybe you do. Not too long ago. Somewhat of an eventful year. Perhaps you remember March 2020. It was March 11, 2020. On the same weeknight, seemingly all public events ceased and arenas were emptying out in the middle of of basketball games and tournaments were being, and concerts were being canceled. And over the coming days, all businesses shut down. Supply chains broke. Stores carrying essential goods, their shelves became bare. And no one quite knew what to make of it. Everything that seemed so certain, so immovable, In one fell swoop, felt like it was slipping away from us. All of this caused by a tiny virus, a germ, passed through droplets in the air. There are many opinions about what happened and about uh, how it was handled. But we should at least let it be a reminder that if a virus can make the world stand still, then what can our God do? So Isaiah 34, Isaiah 35, God can make prosperity Uh, turn into desolation. God can bring blessing out of barrenness. That the two chapters placed together, what does it remind us to do? It reminds us to be aware of the power of God. It reminds us uh, how blessed is he, as we sang today, how blessed is he whose God is the God of Jacob, who makes this God to be his aid, his help, his stronghold. And God has shown himself to be Exactly the kind of God who does this throughout Israel's history and throughout world history. If an Israelite would have heard either one of these chapters, these prophecies, through Isaiah 34 or 35, uh, there would have been a recognition, yes, our God can do this. God is the one who said, let light shine out of darkness. Uh, The earth was formless and void and God uh, gave form to the earth and he created by the word of his power and light 
shone through the darkness. Psalm 33 says, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He's powerful. He is the God who brought freedom out of slavery when his people were in Egypt. And Deuteronomy chapter 4, God asks Israel to reflect upon this. He says, ask from one end of the heaven to the other whether such a great thing of this has ever happened, whether it has ever been heard of. Did any people hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm like God has done for you? This was shown to you so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. He made light shine out of darkness. He made freedom appear out of slavery. He gave Israel deliverance from certain death when they were at the Red Sea. And Exodus 15 reflects upon that. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? They're looking at the victory they have won and passing through the Red Sea on dry land. And Pharaoh's army being defeated in the Red Sea, they're saying there is no one like our God. There is no one this powerful. Throughout the history of Israel, of course, God had given them victory in the face of defeat. You think of Joshua chapter 10. There's an alliance of five kings who are coming up against Joshua and the people of Israel. And they go out against them in in battle. And the Lord throws the other army into a panic and they flee. And then we read this. As they fled before Israel... The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Yes, this is how powerful God is. All this gives the same message. It matters not what the circumstances are. It matters not what nature might suggest. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is powerful enough to accomplish his purposes no matter what. And the promise here in, or the prophecy in Isaiah 35 is that one day the land of Israel will become desolate. Isaiah is an early prophet to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's looking forward. He's seeing a desolation of the land that's going to come because they have disobeyed their God. They're going to be carried off into exile. And most people would say, okay, well that's the end of Israel then. But God will make the land flourish once again. And he uses three places in particular. Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. All of them either beautiful mountainous regions or uh, lush lands sprouting with vegetation. Sharon is right on the Mediterranean Sea. And the picture here is that the dry arid desert that is inland is going to flourish like these lands that have much more water present to them. We lived in in San Diego for a few years and it was always as you got to the coast you would see more green because the marine layer would come in off of the ocean. It would stay over a part of the land but as you worked your way inland that would all be burned away and it would all be desert. So that is the way nature works. You work farther inland from the sea there's going to be less vegetation and God's saying it doesn't matter how far inland you go if I want to make it sprout with green and vegetation, I'm going to do it. And in fact, that is what I'm going to do with my people. I'm going to give blessing out of barrenness. In the desert shall blossom the rose. This is the great change of grace. He makes light shine out of darkness. He brings freedom out of slavery. He uh, gives blessing out of barrenness. This is our God. This is what he does. This is how he makes his glory 
known. We also see that there's a confidence that comes from grace. Verses 3 and 4 are that call to, to ground your confidence not in your own strength. Ground your confidence in this, the work of this God. Look at what he has done and rest in what he has done. And let that be a reminder of what he will do. That he will act for you. And that of course brings us to Christ. And that he is the, the apex, the pinnacle of God's work. When I first started playing football, my first experience was high school varsity. I basically skipped all of the lower levels. You're supposed to kind of grow up playing Pop Warner and playing on weekdays and then maybe Saturday mornings, but I never did that. And so that my first experience was kind of the bright lights, the big stage of high school football. I remember running out for my first play and it was like all the energy was sucked out of me. There, felt, there, there was nothing in my legs. I didn't know what to expect. I was sort of scared and not really sure how it was going to go. And the, the point is that fear weakens. Fear weakens you. It makes you feel weak. E.J. E. Young says this, Hands that are sinking because their owner is frightened and fearful cannot do the things that they should. Knees that shake and are tottering cannot endure, nor permit a person to stand erect and firm as he should. Israel was filled with fear at this time because of the empire of Assyria that was sort of casting a shadow over all of the earth. It seemed certain that at one point Israel would be conquered by the empire of Assyria. And so Young goes on, at this time there was reason for fear. Over the face of the earth spread the wings of that great bird of prey, Assyria. For Judah there seemed to be no future. Doom and destruction appeared certain. The ancient order of things must surely pass away. Promises made to the fathers go by the board. It was a time of fear and trembling. And in the midst of that, God says, fear not. Certainly there was reason for them to be afraid. There was reason for them to be uncertain. But God commands them to stand up straight. To lift up their hands. To be firm and steadfast and immovable. To rejoice and to live not in their own strength, but in the strength of the God who will come for them and will come to save them. It's a simple phrase that really becomes the center of the call to trust. Your God will come. Or your God comes. The fearful and the anxious always are suggesting that God is not doing the things that he should be doing. You're filled with fear. You're filled with doubt and uncertainty and anxiety. It, it is because you're giving into the temptation to believe God is acting in a way that he should not be. God says, fear not. Let your confidence be that I am coming. There's reason to fear in this world. The last year and a half, there's been so much uncertainty. And we were thinking about that a lot when, uh, when baby Rose was on her way. It's a time that many people lived in fear of many reasons, perhaps not just even a sickness, but the realization that everything you think is normal can be taken away from you at any moment, right? As Young says, the ancient order of things must surely pass away. The life that we enjoy that's fairly comfortable when we realize that it's going to be taken away from you, all of a sudden, fear and doubt reign. But that's what happens when the veil of this age is stripped off, when we are made to see really what is certain in this age, that's what happens. There is nothing of this world, of this earth, of this age that is certain, that is guaranteed. So what is our confidence? God will come. 
Fear not, for God will come. There are two things that accompany the, com- the coming of God. First is vengeance. He will conquer all of his and our enemies. And secondly, he will set right the things of this world and of this age that are distorted because of the curse of sin and death. Uh, so the blind will see, the lame will leap, the dumb will sing. Certainly one of the things pictured here is the defeat of outward enemies like Assyria, the future, ba- the future kingdoms of Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome. Well, you think about the way that Jesus saw fulfillment of this passage, and he alluded to it when John the Baptist's disciples came to him, and they said, John wants to know, are you the one? Because John doesn't think that you're doing the things he was expecting you to do. Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. The idea here that Jesus is saying is that I am the God who comes. I have come to conquer enemies. I have come to reverse the effects of sin and death. And so, yes, there is that outward manifestation of the promises of God. And he does give Israel temporal and earthly blessings. And yes, as we look forward to the last day, Jesus Christ, the King, will come and he will conquer all of his and our enemies once and for all. But the certainty of that is that Christ has already done that by coming to conquer sin and death. And the proclamation of the gospel is that God has come in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 35 has the picture of that because the way that salvation is pictured in this prophecy is water in the desert, which is a consistent way of picturing salvation throughout all of Scripture. So verses 6 and 7, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. And as we think about that, we are forced to, to think about who our greatest enemies are. Because as if you were to picture the human race trying to accomplish salvation in itself, to achieve blessedness before God, all of our abilities, all of our achievements, all that we could do, what would it be like? You would picture it like a dry and arid desert. There's nothing that we can produce in and of ourselves that God is going to look upon and see that it's beautiful, like a rose blossoming in the desert. All of our efforts cannot amount to anything saving. We are hopelessly sinful. And so if you were to symbolize grace, which God gives freely unto his people, what would you draw? You would draw water bursting forth in the midst of the dry desert, which is exactly what God has done in his most magnificent of reversals. The Westminster standards talk about this, the change of grace. We are by nature in an estate of sin and misery, but God by his grace freely brings us into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. You see how the, the diametrically opposed those are. Sin and misery, salvation by a redeemer. And that redeemer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ emerges as this true rose in the desert, having beauty Unlike any other, Samuel Rutherford says, There is nothing but perfect garden flowers in heaven, and the most beautiful one that is there is Christ. And so if God's grace is beautiful, like a flower blossoming in the desert, then how beautiful is Jesus Christ, where all of his grace and all of his redemption and all of his work 
is centered. God strengthens us by his grace. And how do we know that our God comes? Because he already has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is our confidence that God comes. Christ is our confidence that God will come. We may fear, we may fear be anxious about many things or be tempted to be. But God strengthens us by his grace. He says, stand up, be firm, steadfast, immovable. But do we stand in our own strength? No. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That is the confidence of grace. And then finally, the way of grace. Two things that we're going to talk about here. The way of grace, where we see this highway of holiness. And then the way of life to which we are called. Really, God calls us to be like roses in the desert. Uh, testaments to his beauty and his work in us. A people unlike those who are defined by this age and this world. But first, the highway of holiness. Verse 8 begins the final section of this beautiful chapter by picturing a highway in the middle of the desert. The way of holiness. It says it's only the redeemed who walk on this highway. Isaiah's description is that to those who are given eyes to see, they will not be able to miss this highway. The need to walk on this way will become as clear as a flower blossoming in the desert. To those who see Jesus to be the way and the truth and the life, they have come to this realization. When God gives life by his grace... The way of Christ, the road of Christ, becomes so abundantly obvious that we can do no other than walk upon it. Maybe a small path that goes through the desert, but it's abundantly clear to those who are given eyes to see. Maybe you have never seen the way in which Jesus is the only one who can lead us out of our barrenness, of the desert of sin and despair. Maybe you've never seen how Jesus is the only one who can bring us onto this highway to rejoice on our way to Zion. And so I proclaim to you with great joy that you can see the beauty of Christ as a rose in the desert. That he is the only way that we can walk onto Zion. In Pilgrim's Progress, Goodwill says this to Christian, Look before thee, dost thou see this narrow way? That is the way thou must go. It was cast up by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ, and his apostles. And it is as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way thou must go. There is no other way to walk but the way of Jesus Christ. So come to him. Believe upon him. Repent because of who he is. And walk upon that way. The promise of God is that when we arrive at Zion, everlasting joy will crown our heads. We will look back upon what he did. We will see that all the activity of God amidst the sin and rebellion of his creatures was like a rose in the desert. It was singular and exceptional in its beauty. We can see that now. We can reflect upon that now. And as we reflect upon it, as you see, just like people in our our movie, our novel at the beginning, when they saw this spring of hope, it changed them to see something so unlike what they were used to seeing. You need to train yourself to look upon Christ with the eyes of faith and understand that it is so different than anything you will see here. Here below. And so if that is true, and since that is true, let the power of God in Jesus Christ by his spirit change you so that you might walk on this way of holiness and might be like a flower, a rose in the desert. 
1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And how are we to do that? He goes on to explain, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Let your life be defined by actions that distinguish you from those who are defined by this present evil age. Bishop J.C. Ryle says this, uh, there must be something distinct and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. It will never do to idle through life, thinking and living like others if we mean to be owned by Christ as his people. Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we the spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits and tastes and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. People of God, remember your baptism today. But remember that baptism is more than a ritual. It sets us apart as God's people. And thus improve your baptism. Ask God that he would give you the grace to see the wonder of his grace, the beauty of his work, and then to have confidence in his grace, and then to walk on the way of grace, knowing that he plants us here to be little testaments towards what he has done, that we are to walk as a holy nation, that we are to watch our conduct so that we may shine as lights in a dark world, so that we may walk and we might live as roses in the desert. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask for you to impress these things upon us and we thank you for the beauty of grace, the beauty of Christ, the the beauty of the life to which you call us. How needful we are and how much we need your help. We ask that you would be pleased uh, to plant that grace in us that we might live according to all of these things. And we may reflect upon these truths today. Be with us today and each day that we might stand up, lift the sinking hands and strengthen the feeble knees, but always stand in Christ and in no one else. We ask in his name. Amen.